0: Can you imagine having to make a decision about who gets access to something that could save their lives, and as a result, who doesn't get access? Would you use a lottery system, an algorithm? Would you make a call on a first-come, first-served basis? Well, in the 1960s in Seattle, a committee, almost like a jury of local citizens, were asked to do just that.
1: When first invited to serve on the committee, I was very uncomfortable feeling that I was taking the place of God.
0: We're about to hear from Rick Mazel, a medical historian at the University of Houston. A few years back, Rick was doing some research when he came across this story.
2: I'm a glutton for punishment. I like topics that are difficult <laughs> to, to, to research and find.
0: He found this one article about the committee in Seattle that caught his attention.
2: I was curious as to why I didn't know that much about it. For whatever reason, historians have steered clear a bit of this conversation. It was really a fascinating but difficult scenario to engage.
0: So Rick kept digging. He found out the story started with the grand opening of a medical clinic. The treatment the clinic provided was highly specialized and time-consuming, so time-consuming that patients had to go in twice a week and get hooked up to a machine overnight.
2: All night, while they read or talk or work or sleep, the entire blood content of each patient is being circulated through an artificial kidney and cleaned and pumped back into the body again.
0: These clips are from an NBC documentary called Who Shall Live?, filmed a few years after the Seattle Artificial Kidney Center opened. It aired in 1965 on national television and created quite a stir. The kidney center was revolutionary. It was the first place in the whole world to offer long-term kidney dialysis, a brand new type of life-saving treatment. There was just one problem.
2: The cold, hard fact of the matter is... There are just so many places available on the kidney machine. And there are more applicants than places. Somebody has got to be left out. And somebody has got to decide who shall live and who shall die.
0: Yikes. Who shall live and who shall die. When Rick saw who the people were who would determine that, he was shocked. The kidney centre put seven seemingly random people in charge. They would later come to be known as the God Squad, the ones to determine the fates of thousands of their neighbours. It was up to them to decide which patients would be saved.
2: I thought it was pretty unbelievable that they would have lay people and community people making this decision.
0: This whole thing, this attempt to figure out who should have access, became so controversial, such a pivotal point that it would become a wake-up call for the need for a more transparent system. This is a story that paved the way to what is now known as bioethics. I'm your host, Lauren Aurora Hutchinson. I'm the director of the Ideas Lab at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. In this season of Playing God, we went behind the scenes to discover how some of the most significant medical innovations impacted people's lives and continue to. Whether it's saving lives or creating babies, a new technology was usually waiting in the wings, along with a multitude of ethical questions. We looked at where we draw the line, should we draw the line? What's right and what's wrong when it comes to our bodies? And we turned to bioethicists to answer these questions. But in this bonus prequel episode, we're doing something different. We're going back in time to immerse you in one of the most important foundational stories of modern bioethics. From Pushkin Industries and the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, this is Playing God. By the 1950s, if someone had kidney disease, they could be surgically connected to a machine called an artificial kidney, also known as the dialysis machine. Dialysis, at the time, worked well for anyone whose kidneys needed help for just a short while. But people whose kidneys had failed needed ongoing dialysis for life, or they would die. Connecting to a dialysis machine did a lot of damage to blood vessels, so there were only so many sessions a patient could do. In 1960, a young Seattle nephrologist named Belding Scribner decided to do something about it. He designed a little U-shaped piece of hollow Teflon called a shunt. It could be left in a patient's arm or leg permanently to use again and again to connect to a dialysis machine. This meant chronic kidney disease would no longer be a death sentence. I just want to pause here for a moment because even with the Scribner shunt, it wasn't possible to treat everyone. So who should be granted access when there isn't enough of something life-saving to go around? This question around the allocation of resources is one of the most central questions in bioethics that's still being asked about all sorts of things today. What's the best way, or rather, what's the least bad way to resolve this kind of dilemma? Well, here's what happened in this case. In 1962, the Seattle Artificial Kidney Centre opened at Swedish Hospital Initially, the centre had just three machines and could only treat up to nine patients. Each person selected would need to continue to be treated for the rest of their life. At the time, chronic kidney disease killed tens of thousands of people in the US each year. Regular dialysis was their only shot at staying alive. So how would the centre choose which patients would get a second chance at life? To begin... Belding and the hospital set up an initial screening process to whittle down the thousands of patients to hundreds. And in order to even be considered for a spot in the first place, each candidate needed a referral from their doctor, Rick says.
2: We don't know if they accepted referrals from black physicians and there were not many black physicians in the 1960s which is part of what I argue is problematic about the committee. You know, Seattle is still a a city that is highly racialized, highly segregated. It's not Alabama or Mississippi, but there was still segregation in hospitals.
0: Which, of course, had implications as to who would get referrals to even be on the list. The center then had specific criteria. Patients had to be between 15 and 45 years old. The hospital advised that children might not be able to handle ongoing long-term dialysis, both mentally and physically. Those of the right age then had to show they could pay for three years of the treatment upfront, $30,000, the equivalent of $300,000 today, and they had to be able to access the centre twice a week.
2: Perhaps most problematic is they could not have underlying conditions, right? So diabetes, hypertension, all of those things would disqualify you from the the possibility of chronic dialysis.
0: The Medical Advisory Committee also interviewed the candidates to get a sense of their psychological health.
2: So people who were emotionally unstable, who were poor, who did not have certain kinds of jobs, who were unmarried, who did not go to church were largely considered inherently biologically flawed by the medical committee. Those were the individuals who were not emotionally stable enough to deal with long-term dialysis.
0: The treatment center evaluated about 50 candidates for each available slot. They would then whittle that number down and hand the final decision over to the God Squad. The God Squad would then have to choose one person out of about four candidates per slot. The people on the God Squad were not experts in kidney disease or dialysis. Only two of them were medical professionals.
2: I am a banker. I am a surgeon. I am a lawyer. I am a physician. I am a labour leader.
0: I am a housewife.
2: I am a clergyman.
0: Belding Scribner and his colleagues decided it was unfair to burden physicians with making the final call. They reasoned since all of the candidates on their list would benefit from the treatment and were deemed good candidates, the choice of who to save was now really more of a social one than a medical one. I can't help noticing where they drew the line between this being a social decision rather than a medical one, because to me it seems like so many of these factors were actually social. Anyway, it was at this point they decided to turn it over to the ordinary people of Seattle. It was their job to evaluate these patients and determine who should live and who should die.
2: There was a woman who was up for evaluation and husband and son said that she was no longer cleaning the house. That was part of what they brought up to evaluate her as to her worthiness of dialysis.
0: We'll be right back after the break. The God Squad's official name was the Admissions and Policies Committee of the Seattle Artificial Kidney Centre at Swedish Hospital.
2: They, of course, say that it represents a cross-section of of the Seattle population. It was mostly men, mostly middle class.
0: Administrators from the Kidney Centre hand-selected the God Squad members. That's right, hand-selected. The hospital gave the committee an information packet on each candidate, with their medical records, psychological evaluations, financial information, even letters of reference. One of the doctors who briefed the committee later said, ''We told them frankly that there were no guidelines. They were on their own. We really dumped it on them.'' The committee decided to review every piece of biographical information they could get their hands on. They also decided to enlist other people to help them, a social worker and a psychologist. What they were looking to determine was what they called a person's social worth.
2: One of the criteria that the patient advisory committee often considered was, you know, the the common good.
0: Rick says if you read through the committee's records, you can piece together what the members thought made someone worthy.
2: Being a white collar worker was better than being a a blue collar worker. A woman who was a a known prostitute was rejected for a, a woman who was a mother of four. Another one that sticks out is a young man who was considered to be, and this is the, the term that they use, a never do well a playboy. And so he does not have the right temperament or morality, and he's not worthy of dialysis.
0: The committee members were kept anonymous, and their work happened behind closed doors. But in 1962, a prominent reporter named Shana Alexander revealed their inner workings to the world in a Life magazine article. Amazingly, all of the committee members agreed to be interviewed, as long as they were not identified. The committee even reenacted one of their first deliberations so Shana could hear how they sounded in action. Their conversations made it clear that, to committee members, what made someone worthy of saving was a matter of personal opinion. We had voice actors read from the article. If we
1: are still looking for the men with the highest potential of service to society, I think we must consider that the chemist and the accountant have the finest educational backgrounds of all five candidates.
2: How do the rest of you feel about number three, the small businessman with three children? I'm impressed that his doctor took special pains to mention this man is active in church work. This is an indication to me of character and moral strength. For the children's sake, we've got to reckon with the surviving parent's opportunity to remarry. And a woman with three children has a better chance to find a new husband than a very young widow with six children.
0: How can we possibly be sure of that? Shana's article, not surprisingly, caused outrage.
2: Lawyers at the time, you know, argued that it was really just a way for physicians to avoid the responsibility of making a difficult decision that they did not want to make and that nobody wants to make.
0: Mostly Rick says people pointed out the obvious flaws with a metric like worthiness.
2: Someone who is you know an activist in the civil rights movement, that's a social good, but it might not fit within the ideals of of what it is that they think as a social good. So you could have a well-respected business person who's still unethical in a number of different ways.
0: In the end, the committee selected the first group of patients, among them a physicist, an engineer a car salesman, an aircraft worker, and an oil company executive. By most accounts, the God Squad kept meeting until 1972. That year, Congress passed legislation making dialysis available to everyone whose kidneys have failed. But the committee lived on in public imagination. Many people didn't get the life-saving treatment they needed because they were deemed less worthy. The God Squad were people who just had to make up the rules as they went along. There was no template yet for best practices or ethical guidance in making these kinds of decisions. They were starting from
1: scratch, you know, and I think that we have a much more robust literature. You know, we have a history of bioethical analysis to lean on now. And of course, we're still improving over time and how we think about these things.
0: This is Kate Butler. She's a clinical nephrologist based in Seattle. And she says what is key is to design a system that's fair. But of course, fairness can be understood in lots of different ways. Do we want to make the very best use of resources in terms of
1: saving the most lives, in terms of having the most life years lived? Do we want to consider quality of life years lived? And if so, who decides on quality and or Do we want to make sure that we're allocating resources in a way that feels equitable to us? Um, And again, who is that us? Who's making the decision about whether the system is equitable?
0: Kate told us that nowadays systems are based on ethical foundations. For example, one way of doing things would be to prioritize recipients who we expect to live the longest after a transplant, which would be a utilitarian approach. Or you could use a lottery so that everyone on the list gets an equal chance of a transplant, which would be based on the principle of equality. I mean, which one do you think would be most fair? Kate gave an example, the National Waitlist for Kidneys, which is a modified version of waiting until your number is called. And that
1: process has been worked out over decades as a collaboration between clinicians,
0: bioethicists, the community uh, by way of community forums there's an organisation that monitors the systems to see if it's working the way it's supposed to. It's called the United Network for Organ Sharing. In 2014, they discovered a flaw. The waiting list wasn't accounting for some groups of people, mainly people of colour, having a harder time getting on the list in the first place. In bioethics, equity is a key principle. It's important to account for disadvantage or underrepresentation. So they made a change.
1: There was an intentional effort to change the waitlist criteria to give you retroactive time for a time since you started on dialysis. So people would get points for the time spent on the waitlist or how long they had been on dialysis, whichever is longer.
0: The change was apparent within months. The system still isn't perfect, but Kate says it's an example of how the field of bioethics has evolved since the time of the God Squad
1: there's more to medicine than just clinical analysis of of individual cases, that considering the bioethical implications of these decisions was necessary and important. I think that's why people refer to this example as the birth of bioethics.
0: Today, it's part of the process to consider ethics in medical advances.
1: Any situation in which you have resource scarcity, for something so consequential as healthcare, there's gonna be tragedy, right? There's gonna be someone who doesn't get the care you want for them. We're not gonna be able to design a perfect system.
0: As we have heard from this series, the landscape is ever shifting. Every time there's a new medical innovation, there's a whole new set of ethical questions. If you've enjoyed playing God, then we're going to have plenty more stories like this coming out of the Ideas Lab at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Playing God is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Special thanks to our guests in this episode, Rick Muzzell and Kate Butler. Emily Vaughan is our lead producer. Production support from Sophie Crane and Lucy Sullivan. Our editors are Karen Chakurji and Kate Parkinson-Morgan. Theme music and mixing by Echo Mountain. Engineering support from Sarah Brugger and Amanda K. Wang. Show art by Sean Carney. Fact-checking by David Jar and Arthur Gompertz. Our executive producer is Justine Lang. At the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, our executive producers are Jeffrey Kahn and Anna Mastriani working with Amelia Hood and with support from Susan Sneed, Aaron Henkin, Abigail Brickler, Kim Bikemer, Anna Oaks and Jamie Smith. Funding provided by the Wall Foundation. Special thanks to voice coach Vicky Merrick. This is our last episode so we'd like to thank some of the many people at Pushkin who've supported this show throughout the season including Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fane, John Snars, Lital Malad, Greta Cohn, Carly Migliori, Jasmine Perez, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMill, Isabella Navarez, Nicole Opp Denbosch, Maya Koenig, Jake Flanagan, Owen Miller, David Glover, Nina Lawrence, Mia LaBelle, and Ian Pexer. To learn more about bioethics and the issues presented in this series, please visit bioethics.jhu.edu forward slash playing God. I'm Lauren Aurora Hutchinson. Thanks for listening to Playing God. If you're interested in learning more about these stories and discussions, visit the Berman Institute's guide to the podcast at bioethics.jhu.edu playinggod or find us on social media at Berman Institute.